This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about your legal rights and your questions about the law. Good morning. I'm Greg Mayer, filling in for your regular host, Liz Gill. And I'm joined, as always, by Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We have two special guests joining us today, David Calder, a clinical professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Aaron Smith, a volunteer for the Court-Appointed Special Advocates Program in Oxford. Both of our guests are here to talk about children and the law, particularly for children in need. There are dozens of laws that affect children, and there are hundreds of children who need help working through the court system, both from lawyers and from volunteers. We're going to look at those issues and more. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question or comment, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be right back after the news. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. I'm Greg Mayer, and I'm joined, as always, by Professor Richard Gershon at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We have two special guests today, David Calder, a clinical professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Aaron Smith, a volunteer for the Court-Appointed Special Advocate Program, or CASA program. This morning, we are going to talk about issues in the law that affect children, and there are several. We're going to discuss ways that both lawyers and volunteers help children through the court system, and we'll focus on those issues that affect children who most need the help. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question or comment, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Greg, and I'm really excited about this program today. This is important work that uh, people like David uh, Calder and Aaron Smith are doing, and, uh, you know, the children in our society are some of the most vulnerable people as they go through the legal system. So what CASA is doing, and and David is a board member, he's also the director of our uh, child advocacy clinic, and he's been doing great work in that area for many years. And then Aaron Smith is the founder of the local CASA and board president. So I know it's going to be a great show. David and Aaron, we very much appreciate you being on the show this morning. And, uh, David, I'd like to start with you. And before we start talking specifically about CASA, uh, I was hoping you could give us just maybe an overview of all the different ways that the law affects children. Uh, Sure, Greg. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I was just going to... Uh, give the listeners a little background about the children's rights uh, in in the United States. And just starting back uh, before the late 1800s, parents basically had absolute control over how they uh, raised their children. And anything that happened within the family was considered to be a private matter 
and there weren't any laws that protected or recognized any rights uh, that the children had. Um, so there were no laws that prevented child abuse or neglect uh, prior to the about 1875. Um, the first law originated in New York after a case was filed for the child whose name was Mary Ellen McCormick Wilson, and listeners can Google her name and read about the horrific story that, um, that she has, uh, the abuse she experienced. But um, basically, the, the court convicted the adopted, adoptive uh, stepmother of physical abuse of Mary Ellen but the court also recognized that it had the inherent uh, obligation and power to remove Mary Ellen from uh, the mother's custody. Um, and uh, there, weren't, there weren't any real statutes on the books at that time to uh, protect Mary Ellen, but that uh, gave rise to the first child protection laws that were adopted in New York uh, in 1875. And it really started a movement across the United States for uh, all the states to recognize the um, inherent moral obligation that we have to protect uh, the vulnerable uh, children in our society, uh, even if it means protecting them from their own parents. Um, this, this idea is based on the, the legal doctrine that's known as parents patriae, which that's a Latin term, but it basically means that the state has the inherent power, authority, and obligation to protect people that are unable to protect themselves. Uh, and so this would include uh, both children and disabled adults in, in the protection context. Uh, so under Mississippi law now, uh, the state is considered to be the supreme guardian of all children who are within the state of Mississippi. And this means that our courts have the inherent power to intervene in families in order to protect the best interests of the children if their welfare is being um, jeopardized by maltreatment or um, any kind of abuse that's being inflicted by the parents or the caregivers of the child. Um, so every state now has child protection laws, but there's also an important point that I wanted to mention as far as listeners are concerned, because we also have mandatory reporting statutes in Mississippi. Uh, and that, that means that um, in, every, uh, in every state, and in Mississippi specifically, we, everyone who's listening to this broadcast has an obligation, if you have a reasonable cause to suspect that a child's being abused or neglected, you have an obligation to report that abuse to the child abuse hotline that the Department of Child Protection Services has set up. Uh, the calls are confidential, the identity of the reporter is confidential, but it's important that the public, general public, is aware of their reporting obligation um, because that's really how uh, most of the, of the calls come into our Child Protection Services offices. Um, David, so, um, David, that's some excellent information. And um, to, to circle back onto the mandatory reporting and, and the calling, the, the, the number, if you suspect, what, and this I throw this to both you and Aaron, uh, what are some of the things that people could look for that might indicate to them a child is in distress and in need? Well, uh, it, generally, I use the, uh, I, when I 
uh, talk to my students about uh, what what is abuse and neglect, generally I tell them that you'll know it when you see it, uh, because sometimes it's obvious when a child's being mistreated. Um, I would I would encourage people to err on the side of caution as far as protecting children is concerned, because our our system is, has uh, built-in checks and balances so that. The, the calls that don't rise to the level of actual abuse or neglect under our statutes are screened out. And it's, but it's important that the calls are made in the first place just so that, that uh, things can uh, be investigated to see if there's any problem. But uh, just to answer your question more specifically, if we're talking about child abuse, um, at, there, there are different categories of abuse that are, are defined under our laws. Um, for the first kind of abuse is actually child neglect, which is uh, any, any failure to provide food, clothing, shelter, education, support, or supervision that's necessary to protect the child's safety and well-being. So any time that there's a suspicion that a child's being neglected and not properly cared for, that, that would, in my opinion, generate a call to the hotline so that it can be investigated. Um, the other types of abuse we might have are more of uh, what you might think of more commonly as physical abuse, uh, any kind of punching, beating, slapping, uh, kicking, hitting children. Um, now, we do, we do allow corporal punishment under our statute. Uh, but the rule is that uh, parents aren't allowed to inflict um, injuries in the form of marks and bruises that uh, the, the, uh, on the child in order to, to use corporal punishment. So um, the other types of abuse might be uh, emotional abuse, uh, sexual abuse, again, but those, those may be a little less obvious. Um, as far as the reporting is concerned. So. This morning we are talking with Professor David Calder and Aaron Smith about children in the law, particularly children who most need help in the law. If you have a question, call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, David and Aaron, uh, uh, once... A child has, once there's been a report, and David, at the top of our conversation, you noted that the courts can step in and intervene, and there's things the court can do. Could you, it's sort of a high level and by way of introduction, uh, give us an overview of ways courts intervene and assist children, for instance, through guardian ad litems? Sure. Um, Mississippi has what we what we call our youth court system. Um, now, we have... Uh, there's actually two different um, uh, forms that, that our youth courts operate in Mississippi. First of all, we have um, 21, and I think Hancock has just established a, a county court, youth court, so soon to be 22 county courts that actually serve as the youth court judge and hear youth court cases in Mississippi. But then every other county that does not have a county court has its own local youth court that's really a, a subsidiary of our chantry court system. So every county in Mississippi has what's called the youth court. Whenever um, 
a call comes in to the uh, the child abuse hotline, those calls are are screened, and then the cases that appear to be legitimate uh, reports are referred to the local county child protection services office, and then that. Um, county uh, office sends a caseworker out to make contact with the child and with the family to um, see if there's any apparent uh, safety risk to the child uh, and to um, basically investigate the case to see if, the, if it's a valid report. The, um, the case is then referred to our youth court judges and the youth court judges have a specific uh, well-defined process that they go through in terms of uh, deciding if the child needs to be actually placed in foster care for some reason or if um, there is um, uh, certain resources that can be provided to the parents to try to alleviate any condition or behavior that is causing the problem so that the child doesn't have to be removed from the home. But that's the job of our local caseworkers is to, first of all, try to prevent removal, and then if removal is necessary, the youth court judge enters an order that places the child in foster care, and then um, the youth court um, requires the caseworker to develop a service plan to work with the parents to try to uh, get the child back in their custody. When we come back from the break, we're going to continue our discussion about children in the law, and we're going to turn our attention to a specific program that brings lawyers and volunteers to the aid of children in need. If you'd like to join our conversation, call us at one mpb ring That's one 672 7464 You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. standing member of MPB Think Radio. We appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. You can also find it on the new MPB Media app. All of MPB's shows are available on the app. This morning, we are talking with Professor David Calder at the University of Mississippi School of Law and Aaron Smith, the founder of a program uh, known as the Court Appointed Special Advocates Program in Oxford, Mississippi. Aaron, I'd like to turn to you because we've been talking in general about ways that uh, the legal system helps courts. And your program, CASA, the Court Appointed Special Advocates Program, has a a vital role, a new role to play in that. And I was hoping you could give us an overview of what it is. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, CASPA, like you said, stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. Um, and it began in 1977 uh, when a Seattle youth court judge was concerned about making drastic decisions with insufficient information um, and thought that the idea of having citizen volunteers speak up for the best interests of abused and neglected children in the courtrooms. Um, and from that first program, uh, CASA has grown to nearly a thousand programs, um, and we are still, so we are. Um, in 49 states and the District of Columbia. Um, and so that being said, uh, I started this program as a, well, I was a volunteer um, for about four years and then I saw a need to start this program in, in Lafayette County. Um, and you know, Mississippi, out of our 82 counties, we only have six programs um, in the state um, with Oxford being the seventh. So I, I'm, my vision is to expand this program um, in North Mississippi especially because uh, it's definitely absent, and it's there's a need for every county in Mississippi to have a program like this. David or uh, Professor Gershon, could y'all speak to the need for this type of program here in the state? Uh, sure, Greg, and l let me just uh, follow up with what I was telling you about youth court earlier. In every uh, youth court case where there's an uh, abuse and neglect uh, alleged, the court appoints what's called the guardian ad litem, and that's uh, an attorney. Uh, usually an attorney who is an advocate for the child's best interest. Uh, under Mississippi law, we have his, uh, um, for a long time, we have recognized the role of court-appointed special advocates being laypersons who may also be appointed as a uh, guardian ad litem um, and in order to advocate for the child's best interest. But just in this last session, the Mississippi legislature uh, amended our statute and kind of broadly expanded the role that the CASA worker can play in um, participating in youth court proceedings to try to uh, get the best result we can for the children that are involved. So now um, the youth court is authorized to appoint both a an attorney guardian ad litem to advocate for the child and also a CASA worker volunteer who would uh, basically be focused just on that one child at a time. Each CASA worker would have one case assigned at a time, and they would just provide um, uh, resources and uh, or, or at least uh, uh, consultation with the, with the uh, child and the family, and they would be able to offer uh, another uh, view to the judge about what's really going on with the child and uh, to help the judge make the best decision possible. But I'll let uh, Aaron talk a little bit more about uh, what the CASA workers actually do. So we, um, like David said, you know, we are uh, a huge resource, in my opinion, um, to the courts and to the guardian items because um, we do provide, you know, thorough investigations of, of what is going on. Um, an extra set of eyes, and I always say you can never have too many eyes on a on a court case that is involved uh, with youth. Um, so that's that's really where I I think that we come into play is that um, we really take the time to investigate uh, the case, and we are only assigned to one case, like like David said as well. Um, whereas you might have a guardian litem that is on you know 10 cases at a time, um, and the same with a, a CPS worker. Um, and so we are, we are trained volunteers. Um, we go through 
a 30-hour pre-service training, um, and then we do a 12-hour in-service training every year. Um, and, and we are really there for the best interest of the children. I think one thing that might be helpful to point out, because uh, particularly non-lawyers and non-CASA uh, volunteers may not uh, realize, is in youth court, that's that's a different in, in terms of whether it's adversarial or not. It's it's different in youth court than it is in say circuit or chancery or any of the other courts in Mississippi. Because at least in my experience with youth court, both the quote prosecutor and the lawyer representing the child are all looking out for the best interest of the child uh, and looking for ways to help that child. Has that been uh, your experience, Aaron, in dealing with lawyers and, and youth court? Absolutely. And, and in what ways do you then, as a, a CASA volunteer, help uh, both uh, from the, with the prosecutor's standpoint and with, with the child lawyer? Well, uh, from, the, from the guardian ad litem standpoint, uh, we, we always, and, and that's uh, primarily what my students in our clinical program here at Ole Miss do, we serve in the role of the guardian ad litem, and we are focused 100% on the best interest of the child. And we don't, we're not a representative of the, either parent, but we're there to help the court make the best decision possible. But I think what you said, Greg, is exactly right is the, the judge's goal is to protect the best interest of the child. The caseworker's goal is to do what's best for the child. The prosecutor's goal is, is to do the same thing. So everyone is trying to work together to, um, to address, you know, what, what the problem is and to try to um, provide, um, well, let me just say, say that about uh, 70 to 75 percent of the cases that come into youth court or, or neglect cases that, in my experience, have been very often related to issues of uh, income, resources, and poverty. And so a lot of times what families need is um, help finding out what resources are available to, to um, uh, help them through, you know, get, get what they need for the children. and to help them uh, deal with the issues of providing a safe home for their child and to, to be sure that they're being properly educated and, and cared for. Um, and so that's, that's really everyone's goal. And whenever a child is, is taken into legal custody by the Department of Child Protection Services, their first priority is to try to reunify the child with the parent by uh, providing resources that can, can deal with the issues of, um, you know, that um, gave rise to the, to the child coming into custody in the first place. This morning we are talking with Professor David Calder and Aaron Smith about children in the law. If you have a question about that topic or any topic, you got a room full of lawyers, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can also send an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Uh, Aaron, you, you mentioned that uh, these volunteers do uh, extensive training, 30 hours of training. And, and Could you go into some detail of what that training entails? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, that training could go over, you know, a, a, a long weekend. Um, that training could go over, you know, a six-week period of time. Um, there's a lot of role-playing that goes in. Um, you will, you know, go through various cases because um, you never really know what kind of cases you'll get put on. Um, that could be something very straightforward um, or it could be something, as, you know, as difficult that's being carried on for a year at a time. 
Um, and one thing that, that I say is, um, you know, very important about ACASA volunteer is that we are the, the constant figure in that child's life um, until they are in a permanent home. So if they're removed from, from a home and they go into foster care, um, we stay with that child and we, we meet with them, you know, one to two times a week um, and until they're, they could be in foster care for, you know, three years. Um, and, and we would stay with that child until, um, until that child is in that permanent home. So that's one thing I think is important is that we do remain that constant person in their life. Um, and that's something, you know, through our training that we, we talk about, um, you know, how, we, how we're, we're able to, you know, connect with that, that children, the children. Because um, it's sometimes hard for, for children to open up to people. Um, but if they have someone that they can com uh, become comfortable with, then it's, it makes it a lot easier um, for us and for them as well. Um, so, but through that training, we learn a various various things uh, about youth court and um, how to go into do home investigations. You know how to talk to teachers, how to talk to counselors, um, how to acquire different types of information to be able to uh, make the correct recommendations for these cases. And, and, and we're going to get into the specifics of the investigations in a moment. But I was just, is there a typical age or sort of an average age of the children that you're uh, that you're working with? No, they can vary from um, infants, so you know, right out of the hospital, um, all the way, of course, to 18 years of age. And, and when generally is your first contact with the child? Is it while the child is uh, in foster care or still with a parent? How, how does that come about? Uh, yeah, so it varies. Um, for me personally, I, I've been with both. I've been with foster care children, and I've been with children that are still in a home. Um, so it, it really will vary. Um, so it's up to the, the judge's discretion on when they want to assign a CASA volunteer to a case. Um, and, you know, within, you know, we're, we are assigned to a case, and then we must contact that child within 48 hours um, of being assigned to it. So, you know, we make pretty immediate um, connections with them, uh, you know, with, of course, it could be, um, like I said, you know, the child could already be in foster care um, or the child could still be with the parents and they're going through the decision of removing the child from the home. And Erin, I wonder, yeah, I mean, you, you're doing great volunteer work. Who, uh, because there are costs involved in, in this <laughs> litigation, who covers your cost at, at CASA? So we are obviously a nonprofit um, and we have to, to raise funds. Um, and so that's, that's a big thing that, you know, when, when I started this program, um, the funds are very important in order for this program to be um, to get off the ground. So we, we seek funding through grants, we seek funding through individual donors um, and other organizations that are that are willing to give uh, give funding to the child advocacy program. But also, um, you know, through the resources um, that we can provide. So whether that be um, you know material goods or whether that be you know tutoring for a child. Um, so we also do in kind giving from other organizations around around town. We're going to take our next uh, break. If, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation uh, with David Calder and Aaron Smith and Professor Richard Gershon about CASA and children in the law. To join in and ask us a question about this topic or anything else that might be on your mind, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Today we're joined by Professor David Calder at the University of Mississippi School of Law and Aaron Smith, a founder of the Court-Appointed Special Advocates Program at Oxford, one of several programs in Mississippi uh, that pairs volunteers with lawyers to help children uh, who are most in need, the, the, those who uh, are in, in facing possible neglect or abuse. And Aaron or David, this might be a good opportunity if you could sort of walk us through when you've been assigned a case, uh, the investigation, like which I know must be a difficult thing for any new volunteer walking into it. But what's what is it that you go through the process? Who do you interview? What are you looking for uh, that you can then report back to the court? Well, Greg, I can just tell you as far as the, uh, our role as the guardian ad litem, we we always. Um, conduct interviews with the parents, and um, we want to be sure that we get their version of what is what is going on and what the problem is. And, and we certainly try to report that to the court uh, as far as what the parents' position is about the the allegations that are made against them. Um, we we also talk specifically with the child, and we you know have to use. Um, age-appropriate interview techniques with children who are younger, but even children who, uh, who are as young as uh, four or five, uh, you know, can tell a story and can uh, uh, very often explain situations that may be uh, harmful to them. Uh, we also uh, talk with teachers, uh, daycare providers, uh, we collect information that would be maybe police reports, um, medical reports, anything that relates to um, the child and, and what's going on with the child. We try to compile all that information and, and um, conduct an independent investigation to present our, our recommendations to the youth court judge. So a lot of what we, what we do as guardian ad litem is very similar to what the caseworker does, the Child Protection Services caseworker, but we're an independent uh, arm of the court, and so we have uh, an obligation to do a separate uh, investigation to give the court our view about it. And I think that's also true for the CASA volunteer. They would do their own independent investigation, would not rely on what I said or what I thought, what the caseworker said or thought, they would have a, a their own um, information that they would be providing to the youth court judge to give the youth court judge the best and, and most information available so that the judge can make, hopefully, the right decision for the child. I'll let Erin talk about anything that uh, she has. Yeah, just to echo what David said, um, you know, we, we do a very thorough investigation. Um, as, as, you know, we're a national organization, and, and they do obviously have requirements for us. And um, like I said a little bit ago, we're, we're required to um, contact um, the family, the child, within 48 hours of, of being assigned to a case. Um, you know, we have 
you know, we do investigations at the school, the teacher, anyone that's over 18 that's involved in the child's life, um, we are, are required to do some sort of interview with them. Um, so, you know, just a lot of what, you know, a CPS worker would do um, and what a, a guardian litem would do as well. Well, let's go to the uh, phone lines. We have Bill from Hattiesburg who's been waiting. Bill, good morning. Good morning. Is this Mr. Dave? Uh, Dave is on the line, and Richard and Aaron and Greg. What's your question this morning? The question is this. Is there help available when the children are, are older than the year of majority or older than 18? Uh, Greg, un unfortunately, our our um, our youth court system generally uh, our our children age out of our youth court system when they're 18. Uh, my understanding is that there are some exceptions to that rule. If the child has been in uh, custody of child protection services, and there may be some uh, educational benefits that they may be able to provide past the age of 18, but. Um, I'm, again, I'm not a child protection services caseworker, so I'm not totally familiar with those uh, programs. But uh, I would encourage anyone who has a, a child who's who's reached the age of 18 and who is still in uh, child protection services custody to talk about that with the caseworker to see what um, benefits there may be to help that child transition to adulthood, because that's really a, a key point that. Um, really needs to be to be addressed among our children, especially those who who don't have a family to go back to. And that that off that is sometimes the case. Uh, but that's something that the local caseworker can help help with. And it, it seems like eighteen, that's a great question about a caller because it seems like eighteen is such an arbitrary number. And I've even heard of statistics where a person's uh, judgment and, and everything else is really not fully developed till twenty five. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, really a question about how we help uh, these, these children after they become, quote, eight, you know, the age of majority, even though that's really just a different number than the one that they had, you know, a few days before. Well, and actually, Richard, the age of majority in Mississippi is 21. Mississippi is one of the few states that still uh, considers uh, children to be a minor until they reach the age of 21. So I've always had a little bit of problem with how our youth court uses the 18 number, but I think it comes from the federal guidelines that are required. And our youth court system operates in large part with through federal funding that comes from the federal grant programs that are available to Mississippi. Bill, did that help answer your question? Do you have more context you can provide us? Context. Uh, these are adults, but uh, they are they are mentally challenged, and and therefore uh, they're just as vulnerable as a child. But uh, so I was thinking that that maybe Casa could help. I I don't know. Did they lose you? Bill, I can uh, address that. The Casa program that we're talking about today is really geared toward children. But what I would encourage you to do, uh, Mississippi does have an adult protection services department through the uh, 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 our state uh, DHS office. And I don't work in that area very often, but I would encourage you to contact the Department of Human Services 
and see what kind of resources might be available um, through the Adult Protection Services. I know there are different um, uh, agencies, area agencies on aging that, that help people, but there's uh, I'm not totally familiar with what might be available just for a uh, an adult who has mental uh, limitations. And, and uh, to follow up with that, David, I, I, and you referenced it, that would include both starting with your city, uh, starting with your county, and then go at the state. There could be potential services available at all three levels of government. Uh, okay. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. Bill, thank you so much for that call. And, and he did raise an interesting issue that David and, and Richard, y'all started to talk about, and that's that three-year gap uh, between when you're a child uh, – Versus when your age of majority in Mississippi, what what happens to it? Uh, for instance, a nineteen year old who's at who lives at home but is in a potentially uh, abusive or neglectful situation. Well, Greg, I think I think they would um, basically fall under the rules that govern uh, uh, just the the general rules that govern. Uh, physical assaults and, and domestic violence and uh, the criminal criminal statutes that would prohibit that kind of conduct. So the the law enforcement would be the the main resource that a 19 or 20 year old would have if they were being physically abused, for instance. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I, that that can be a problem in some cases where. Uh, children may not be provided, you know, with adequate uh, uh, shelter, food from, by their parents, but they're not yet able to be independent. Um, but there's not, there is a gap there in our, our current system. If you've, if you've, if you're 18 or older uh, before 21, are you still eligible to have a guardian ad litem appointed or are you too old at that point? Well, that's a, I think you're eligible. Uh, I think that it always, uh, the appointment of a guardian ad litem in that case would probably be in our chancery court system where there is, uh, our chancellors would be involved in either a custody determination between parents who are still arguing about uh, child custody, which usually is related to who's going to be receiving child support payments. Um, or it could be the chancellor dealing with a uh, protection from domestic uh, abuse situation and uh, entering protective orders that would protect the child from any kind of abuse by a by a parent. Uh, but that would be subject to the chancellor's discretion. Um, I would uh, say that most chancellors, if there is indeed physical abuse going on, most chancellors would probably appoint a guardian ad litem to uh, to represent the child in those situations, so that the child would have an advocate that was looking out after their best interest. Well, let's circle back to talk a, a little bit more about CASA. And uh, I know in Oxford, that is a relatively new uh, chapter program uh, there, but it's been in the state. Has CASA been around in Mississippi long enough that we we can tell whether it's had an impact yet or not? Absolutely. Um, so I, as I told you earlier, we have uh, six programs um, with, with Lafayette County being the seventh. Um, and so very, very prominent in uh, Hancock and Harrison County. Um, and then we're also in Adams County, Clay County, Jackson County, and Warren County. Um, 
and I believe there's a program coming soon um, in the Hines County area. Um, you know, and I, just from my experience working with um, the directors in Hancock and Harrison County, they're making a huge impact um, on the number of children that are in foster care. Um, and so they, it's definitely having an impact across the state. Do we have any sense of how many children have actually been helped by uh, CASA volunteers in Mississippi? I don't have I don't have that um, those statistics, um, but I know that there's there's several thousand children. Um, in 2016, there were several thousand children um, that were in foster care, um, and I know that the need the need for more cost of volunteers is is very high. Um, and you know there's there's some counties that only have you know 30 to 35 children, and then you have counties that have you know almost 1,500 kids that are in foster care that need. Um, CASA volunteers to, to help them. Yeah, and, and I, I looked just briefly to see if I could find a Mississippi statistic. I couldn't, but I did see nationally more than 280,000 children benefit from, from CASA volunteers through the youth court system, which is just a remarkable uh, number of children that are getting assistance that they need. We're going to take our final break for the day. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about children in the law, including our focus on the ways that volunteers and lawyers help children through a special program known as CASA. If you have a question or comment about this or any other topic, you've got a room full of lawyers, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash terms. We're talking this morning with David Calder, a clinical professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and Aaron Smith, a volunteer for the Court-Appointed Special Advocates Program at Oxford and also has programs throughout Mississippi. Lots of very helpful information uh, that David and Aaron have shared with us this morning about children in need and, and the law. I'd kind of like to throw open just a, a, a larger question to, to any of uh, uh, David, Aaron, or, or you two, Professor Gershon. What what do you see today as the most pressing issue, legal issue, facing children? You know, I, I'll start by saying I think one of them, it's not so much a legal issue, but, but David hit on it before, it's, it's poverty uh, and, and how we break the cycle of poverty because, you know, these children get in the system, their parents are not... Uh, financially able to, to provide for them. Sometimes that causes uh, abuse as well. And, and it seems to me that until we learn to break that, that cycle of poverty, we're going to have children that are in the system. Many of them end up, unfortunately, it seems like in the, in the, uh, the judicial, the, the criminal system as well at some point. 
Um, we need to figure that out. And Greg, I would just uh, add to that, uh, e echo what Richard said, but add to that uh, from a legal and a uh, financial perspective, we really do need to um, support our child protection services uh, caseworkers by paying them a, a, more than what we're paying them. We really have a hard time keeping people in these positions. They're, they're very um, difficult jobs to uh, imagine getting a call at 2 o'clock in the morning, having to go out, leave your home and children to go out to investigate abuse or neglect of a child in a remote location and make a determination about whether that child needs to be removed and taken into custody uh, for the child's protection. Uh, very difficult job that these caseworkers face. And uh, we have, they have a very uh, uh, short average tenure. We have a lot of great caseworkers in Mississippi that have been uh, there for a long time, but we also have a high rate of turnover and we have, have a lot of vacancies in our child protection services offices uh, because it is a difficult job and it really takes people who are dedicated and have a, a, a commitment to helping children uh, to fill these jobs, but they really need to um, be paid more than they are. And that's, that's always a, um, and a concern that I have when we're talking about where, where the problem is and that's getting good caseworkers, training them, and keeping them uh, in their positions so that they can do the best uh, job that we can to, to protect the children. Right. And, and these caseworkers, those are really the front line. These are the individuals who go out, correct, and, and actually identify whether a child needs to be removed and put into the court system, whether they then start to benefit from some of these programs like the CASA program and getting appointed an attorney. Uh, do you have any idea of what the typical caseload is today for these these caseworkers? You know, I don't have I don't have the number uh, exactly in my mind. I'm thinking it's somewhere a recommended caseload is somewhere around 15 cases at a time. If I might I might be wrong about that, but I know that uh, in some of our offices in the state, there's so many children in custody. And so, uh, and so many vacancies in the actual positions that are available that our caseworkers are carrying double what they, sh you know, should be um, uh, what the recommended caseload is. So some counties are, you know, pretty close to where, where they should be, but, but some of the other counties, uh, especially with the, uh, the opioid crisis that we're in and uh, the drug problems that we have, there, there has been an increase over the last year in the number of children coming into custody and um, definitely a need for more caseworkers uh, in the field. And that's why the CASA program is so important in, in the places that we have these volunteer programs. So our CASA volunteers are, uh, they're unpaid, so they're volunteering to do this on their own time, but it, um, they're, they're a vital, they can provide a vital resource to the, uh, to the CPS worker and to the court to uh, be just an extra uh, hand in the field out there that's, uh, that's looking out after the children. But um, I do encourage your listeners to consider uh, uh, supporting financially these CASA programs because they, they are nonprofits and they, 
they do have to have an executive director who coordinates all the uh, casework, and so it does take does take money to run these programs as well. But with that in mind, David or Aaron, could you tell us uh, maybe point to a specific, maybe a recent success story that uh, either you've worked on personally or that you've heard through the CASA program that has had uh, the effect that the, uh, the the volunteer and the court system wanted it to have? Well, um, it, I'm, I'm bound by uh, confidentiality rules about the cases that I work on. Oh, yeah, no uh, names. But I can tell you that... Um, it, it is always rewarding to me when I feel like that we have been able to either remove a child from a, from a dangerous situation that can't be corrected or when we're able to um, assist a family in correcting the problems and get the child back home so that they can be with their family. Uh, and there's, a, there's just a great... Um, uh, benefit to me personally from doing this kind of work. I, I mean, I, uh, it's what I, I really enjoy doing, and it's not easy work for any, any of us who are involved in these child protection cases because they're difficult cases to handle, but um, we do the best we can and hopefully achieve um, the best result we can for the children. And I would just like to go off of that. Um, you know, as, as CASA volunteers, um, you know, we mainly, we do this um, because it's, we have a passion for, for helping children. Um, and so, of course, I'm also bound by confidentiality, but um, it's, it's definitely very rewarding to see um, reunification of the family um, or, like David said, you know, to remove a child from a dangerous situation um, and to see them adopted. Um, you know, that's something that uh, we also need more of our adoptive families. Um, so it's, it's a rewarding um, program, uh, but it's, it's definitely also challenging, um, you know, to, to see the difficult situations and to, to not compare them to the things that you have, but, you know, to see what, you know, are they living, you know, the minimum sufficient level of care. Um, it's, it's a great program, uh, obviously, or we wouldn't, wouldn't be starting one here. Um, but it's definitely, like David said, it can't be... It cannot be started without without having funds and without having volunteers um, that are are supportive of of a program like this. To learn more about CASA, you can go to www.casams.org. That's www.casams.org. And that's going to wrap us for today's In Legal Terms. We appreciate Professor David Calder and Aaron Smith joining us today. To hear today's show or a previous show, visit mpbonline.org slash in legal terms or you can download the mpb media app and listen on your smart device on demand our board engineer and producer today was michelle mcadoo for professor richard gershon i'm greg mayer up next is relatively speaking join us again next tuesday at 10 for in legal terms on mpb think radio